Welcome to Logos-ish, guys. I'm here today, Sarah Relliford, joined by my husband, John Hoyne. And today we have with us Atlanta-based writer, Laura Jean Truman. And she is a former chaplain, a delightful writer, a master of the divine, and an Enneagram One. We're about to get into it. We're just diving straight in today. Laura, welcome. Thanks for being with us. It is so exciting to be here. I am just tickled pink. Well, that's really awesome. We're really excited to have you, Laura. You know, we go way back as far as, you know, friendship and stuff like that is concerned. Technically, you are responsible for our marriage. I think so, yeah. But- I, you know what? I'm responsible for your marriage because the first week that I met the two of you, I wanted to get you guys together and to make you be a couple. And I held that for a long period of time while you were not together and was like, this is a dream. Sarah and John need to be together. <laughs> so you guys are living my dream for your life. You might be uh, uh, powerful. <laughs> it's a pretty delightful dream to be living. So Laura, <laughs> normally when people come on, we ask them just to give us a little bit of feedback. Tell us a little bit about themselves, about their background, about how you got to where you are today and got to be doing what you're doing today. Who is Laura Jean Truman? So, so yeah, so a little bit of my background. I um, grew up in New Hampshire, evangelical, homeschooled, conservative, all the, all the boxes, fundamentalist, um, and, you know, got by the grace of God, I truly believe by the grace of God did not end up going to a Christian college, but ended up at the University of New Hampshire, where I discovered that everything I had ever believed was probably a lie. So that, you know, liberal indoctrination definitely worked on me. And that kind of set in motion. I also uh, fell in love with my roommate and InterVarsity Bible study co-leader at the time. And so between, you know, the liberal philosophy department and like falling in love with a girl, I was like, oh no, like fundamentalism isn't working for me. <laughs> um, so that kind of spiraled me into, you know, deconstruction and, and, you know, different religious experiences. And I ended up at Emory Candler School of Theology, where I met just some of the best people, John and Sarah. <laughs> and were and, further indoctrinated into... <laughs> oh, yeah, so much indoctrination. You all were played an integral part of my indoctrination process. Also, oh. isn't this the weekend of that, like, truly epic Halloween party, our first year? Like, You mean one of my yearly and notorious Halloween parties? Well, that's the only Halloween party I went to was that first one of yours because you haven't been inviting me to, you know. Uh, You definitely came to the third year because I was, what was I? I think I was old school Lily from How I Met Your Mother. Ah! I I feel like you were there, at least at the third one. Third year. I'm going to search the pictures. But yes, the first one. I have no memory of this place. um, Laura and I went costume shopping at thrift stores because she was Kaylee from Firefly and mm-hmm. I at the last minute was Rose from Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, that was tremendous. That was tremendous. That is that is a great match. That's not that's not necessarily part of my story except I'm sorry, I have already most, sidetracked us, but please No, this is the most no, I was about to say this is the most important part of my story, which is that Candler <laughs> like formed me really, really deeply in some important ways. Um most essentially the friendships that I made along the way, which are always the most important thing. Yeah, so I did, I did my years at 
years at Candler and then um, worked as a chaplain for a while at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta and then Emory Wesley Woods and then took a little bit of time off to you know do God knows what at the time I don't really know I did not feel directed by Jesus to to do a particular thing and and started working on working on my writing and I've been doing that ever since excellent and what are you writing about these days these days I am writing a lot of one of the one of the nice things about the last one of the only nice things about the last seven months of coronavirus brain and being trapped in the house and unemployed and you know impending doom from the end of the world in a variety of ways a lot of a lot of the writing I did previously was like I did a lot of like short essays and kind of long form essays that I would post on my blog or, or post on other sites. But, you know, who has space for that in 2020? Like who can write more than f- four paragraphs? Um, so a lot of the writing I do these days is actually just directly on Instagram, um, just short meditations and reflections. And I have found that to be a really grounding practice for my own self to like force myself to sit down and process the way that I'm feeling instead of just processing it by like drinking 17 times more than I used to and just watching television. I remember when I used to have a drink like once a week and I'd be like, oh, I'll have one beer on a Monday night. That is not my life anymore. Um, And so kind of the practice of like of sitting down and trying to find words for for the feelings and trying to listen to what people around me are feeling and find words for all of us has ended up being a really good spiritual practice for me. And I'm really grateful, um, really grateful for the chance to to do that kind of in public, to pray in public, because it was a gift to me for sure. That has a really, I think, especially thinking about writing meditations and posts on Instagram, where the medium kind of limits the length of things. It really forces you to distill stuff down. It kind of has almost a, a Zen, you know, koan, haiku kind of quality to it. It forces you to embrace the poetry as opposed to the long form kind of logic and rhetorical things that you might do in an essay. That is super interesting that you would say that because I I have noticed that about, about so my, my, oh, whew, you're giving me new thoughts. This is so exciting. I've missed you guys so much. Um, so I, my, my, my writing style has shifted from being very like point by point I, I loved academic writing. Like I, it was just my favorite thing, you know, like get that opening like thesis paragraph where like each sentence points to one point that you're going to make in the whole essay. I love that stuff. And so shifting to more personal writing and then from that shifting to, to smaller writing, my writing style has changed to a more kind of Zen and meditative and poetic form. And with that, I think the way that I encounter God has shifted too. Like mm-hmm. the medium has changed the way that I am being spiritual. It's not just like I'm using the medium and the medium is like making me write differently, but the medium is also making me think differently, which is just really interesting. And I've never put that together, John Hoyne. So thank you. <laughs> I, I don't think I can take a lot of the credit for that. I've been reading about Hanser's von Balthasar all afternoon. And, you know, his whole thing is about the aesthetics of beauty and about how art is, you know, what grounds us and what lets us model the creative activity of God. 
Mm. And of that, you know, eternal, unconditioned, uncreated being that underlines and provides the foundation for all of us. So the, the way we access it is through art and myth and beauty. And so it just kind of happens to be floating at the top of my brain <laughs> right now. Like this is, this is what I've been reading, actually partially in preparation for next week's episode, which is about Tolkien. So, you know, it's, it's, it just happens to be floating around today. So it's really fun that you're doing this kind of spiritual exercise right now. And who is Hansel von Bathtubzar? <laughs> well, he owns the porcelain place down on, okay, wow. Um, Hans, Hans Urs von Balthasar was, why are you laughing at me? Because I'm so stupid. <laughs> Hans Urs von Balthasar was a Catholic priest who founded an order, a sort of more modern mystical community. But uh, he was a contemporary of a number of people, including one of those popes that you may be familiar with, who originally went by the name of Joseph Ratzinger. Hmm, interesting. Um, speaking of monks, uh, one of the things I love to read on Laura's Twitter is things about your spiritual practices. I feel like you're like my spiritual guru on Twitter. Do you have any particular spiritual practices that are giving you life? I mean, outside of writing these days, what what's happening? Um, what's happening? Did I just ask a got you journalism question? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm always okay. So we might have to cut this part because it sounds weird. I'm a couple people have said this to me about like how they about like my my spiritual practices and how they're like inspired by them and each time someone says that I always think what the fuck are they talking about <laughs> like I feel like all I do is like play video games and eat too much food and cry and like <laughs> I, I I'm I'm truly I I want to be like tell me more what you mean by your question Sarah but I don't want to sound like an asshole I just literally you're the first person that I can directly ask back. When you're talking about my spiritual practices, what are you referring to? I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it's just how you use Twitter. Like, okay, so recently you tweeted a short, it, it was like, write yourself as an Enneagram number, like a, a, a message of comfort. And um, I, I went through all the responses to that and I'm an Enneagram nine. So obviously I, I don't know, I haven't written one yet, but like that just was, I was like, wow, what a great idea. Like how to, to like encouraging people to comfort themselves based on their Enneagram number. And let's, let's go ahead and shift this into the Enneagram podcast that it's inevitably going to become. Oh, absolutely. I am here for that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, that's the first thing that comes to mind. But every so often, like, I just scroll through Twitter, which is just a nightmarish hellscape most of the time. And I'll see a couple of the people that I follow that it's simple, but like just there are just people out there on Twitter that are like permission giving and comforting. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so maybe it's just that you have a general chaplain presence. Maybe you're the Twitter chaplain. Oh my God. I do see a lot of posts from you that kind of say something like, you're going to be okay today. Just breathe take a moment stuff in that direction and it is very comforting yeah or even just like nothing is okay <laughs> <And that's, laughs> that makes me feel like okay all right <laughs> just 
just to say this out loud, the world is absolutely fucked. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, no, um, okay, thank you. That gives that gives a little bit of does that help at all. Um, yeah, no, it actually it really does. Yeah, um, we can just root through your Twitter right now. We do not. Have to. <laughs> no, that does help. Um, you know, I think this is actually, I guess the the line of like of spiritual growth and like psychological and therapeutic growth. Like, where do they you know begin and end? And for me, like, I was taught, I think, more implicitly than explicitly growing up that, like, they were separate things. You know, your, like, mental health was one thing, and then your quiet times were another thing. And so maybe sometimes I, I still, um, like, see my mental health practices as being separate from, like, my meditation with Jesus stuff, when actually it's maybe a lot more similar. A lot of what I do tweet or write, I think, is stuff that I'm saying to myself, right? <laughs> Like, yeah. like, don't spiral off the end of the world. Like, here's, here's a night. How about you give yourself permission to? So I think, I think like learning how to self-soothe in moments of crisis or chaos and give permission to, to name how bad or hard things are is just so important right now for all of us because there are just so many. And this is, okay, so speaking of the Enneagram, this is such a, a particular Enneagram one thing, but I think it's, it has crossover for all types, like the loudness of the shoulds. Like I should be doing this more. I should be handling the pandemic better. Taylor Swift wrote a whole damn album in the pandemic. And it's so good. It's so like, good. I, it's so good. And I'm just here being like, can you just tweet something nice this morning? Like, what if you tweeted <laughs> something nice? And to like give, I, I found the more that we give ourselves permission to do nothing, the more we actually have space to do something. Like it's it's the paradox of grace. I'm pretty reformed in my blood, even though I'm kind of non-denominational and I don't like the reformed bros very much. But that idea of like the centrality of grace, of like nothing mattering but grace. And this idea that seems really true to me that if you want people to do anything, you have to stop telling people to do things. Because like that commanding, like you have to, like the preachiness and the judgment and the sermonizing often either makes us do things for the wrong reasons in ways that hurt our neighbor, or it makes us shut down and freeze up. And I think that the paradox of grace, whether we're giving grace to ourselves or giving grace to other people, or we're getting grace from God, is that once we fully and completely believe in a deep way that we are loved as we are, that we are enough as we are, and we do not have to do anything ever, in that moment, everything blossoms forth. Like that idea of like the tree that bears fruit, trees don't try harder to make fruit. That is their, their nature and, and grace is the thing that is making us flourish. Um, and so like I, I find for me, the more that I really believe that the more that i believe i don't have to do anything things things come things are born that's really wonderful and bubbling up for me right now is this memory you know our one of our themes today is talking a little bit about writing mm. and and some of the writing you've been doing but i had this teacher in high school and i really did not ever quite learn what writing could be until i got to his class you know we moved mm. in the middle of the year we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I landed in this guy's class, and I went from having a teacher who wanted us to write like the editorials at Newsweek to having a teacher who was like, no, I'm not going to give you grades. Mm. I don't believe in grades. Trust me and understand that grades are what, not what matters in a writing course. And so, you know, his whole philosophy was we would come in, we would write, 
we would sit together as a class and people would volunteer and we would dissect things. And so how he taught grammar, of course, was by like, you know, having people stand up there and show their writing. And then he, they would, we would talk about the writing and everybody had to take a turn for the most part. But the philosophy of giving us that room of saying, you are not going to fail this class if you make mistakes because you're never going to learn to write if you don't learn how to make mistakes and identify them and correct them. And just right there, <laughs> it just like popped into my head as you were talking about, you know, grace in particular and this, this upwelling and this, you know, you are enough as you are and giving you room then to grow beyond that. I want to take that class right now. I want to uh, take the class for everything, not just writing. Like I want it to, to take it like as a being human class like that. That's lovely, John. Yeah, that's very interesting. I would consider both of you to be two of the smartest people that I know. And I also feel like you're both like academic high achievers. Um, how, and <laughs> John's shaking his head, but, uh, John, John achieves everything he wants to achieve. I feel like is, is that's a good John. point. Yeah. <laughs> but, John's uh, like, this is worth doing. I'm going to do it perfectly. This is not worth doing. And you can't convince me it is. That is the most accurate description <laughs> I have heard, but, uh, I, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about how that plays into your writing styles, which is something I hadn't considered until listening to you guys just now because I also think you're both very good academic writers it was a really really hard switch for me going from when I when I first started just like on my on my personal blog just doing essays um it felt it it just felt baffling because I I didn't have a class like John's and so I I really liked the kind of like the the safety net of the rules of academic writing because if you follow the rules you will always do it right and they're very clear rules. And like once I figured them out, then I could just do them. And that just felt very, very safe. But when you're when you're writing personal essays or meditations or prayers, I'm sure there are a lot of rules, but I've never taken a creative writing class. So like, no, I don't know what they are. <laughs> um, I've read Bird by Bird a couple of times, so that's nice. <laughs> but like a lot of it is is more sensing and gracey and gut level and intuition and and I guess that's also like thinking of like the shift from fundamentalism into something more mystical. That's the same shift. You go from from a religious experience that says if you plug all these things in, you will be having the correct religious experience. And when you move out of that into mysticism, it's a lot more like I, I, I'm not always sure. Like I'm this, this sense of encountering the mystery of God. God is a mystery. And therefore the way we encounter God is also mysterious. And sometimes that can feel, um, sometimes that feels freeing, but sometimes I'm just hysterically stressed because this is, there's not, there's just no structure. We're just going to like, just loose us out here being like experience the divine. And I'm like, I don't, what, what do you mean? Like how? Like just to, how, what do I do a thing? What thing do I do? Yeah, I, in some ways can really relate to that experience of structure because, you know, I went to undergrad in South Carolina to, you know, learn biology. My undergraduate is um, a bachelor's of science and I became a very good science writer in part because there's rules to that stuff. You know, you sit there and you offer the best description you possibly can of a very concrete and specific thing. And you do it in a certain order under certain sections and headings every single time. And you don't have to stray too much from that. And so then when, you know, when we went to Candler and I got there for the first 
year or so, I was sitting there like, I feel like all the rules have changed. Mm. I feel like all the standards have changed, which they had. You know, we had moved. I'd, I'd moved from science writing to humanities writing, which meant that, you know, a lot of the standards of argument and and uh, I'm not going to I don't like the word proof, but I'm going to use the word proof right now for mm. the sake of shorthand. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the things that we were trying to do, you know, logic doesn't ever change. Rhetoric doesn't really ever change. But, you know, some of those other extraneous rules, some of those other things that you have to do or don't have to do, do change. And adapting was definitely a process that I think I'm still working on to this Mm. day. Yeah, my undergrad was largely in journalism. I switched my major at the last moment, but I really learned how to write in my journalism classes. And it was about getting the most information you could in the least amount of words. And then I went to Candler and it was like, start with this just a light like 12 page paper and be as effusive as possible and it was <laughs> very hard for me to, to make papers long enough and all my classmates would be like oh i can't get everything i feel about this very heavy theological topic into just 15 pages and i would be struggling to write more than like one you say this as if you didn't write all your papers the night before they were due yeah that is um i think that as part of my adult adhd is that i need the adrenaline that comes with writing something oh yeah for sure yeah um i i need that or else i won't do it which is also i've never asked for an extension in my entire life because if i do i will never write it nope (laughs) Yep. Nope. You, you got, you gotta, you gotta be, it's gotta be 4am and you gotta be eating Annie's mac and cheese in bed yeah. while finishing your paper. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the Starburst. Move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a, you know, every once in a while I'm like, I really miss academia. I should go back. Like, you know, I should go back for, you know, that D-min or that PhD. And then sometimes I, I, I don't like, I don't miss that particular energy sometimes. Uh, so I'm taking an Old Testament class with Dr. Bonfilio right now. Laura and John and I all took his class our third year and it is just like so life-giving and I just want to take Old Testament classes for the rest of my life. That's always. always. I want to every once in a while I, I just picked up um I, I've been doing Duolingo every night in the pandemic um, just to brush up on my Spanish but uh, I recently downloaded the Hebrew Duolingo because every once in a while I'm like, remember how much you loved Hebrew? You should get back to that. But it feels like it's so far out of reach at this point and and impossible. But yeah, I want to just pick up Sal and like go through the whole thing. I want to take another Hebrew class from start <laughs> to finish. Those are honestly, it is a strange thing. It is a strange thing. But like looking back at at Candler, I would say probably my best memories of Candler School of Theology was Hebrew class, like, like studying Hebrew, because it was just the hardest and the worst and the funniest and the most life-giving. And I think actually coming back, swooping back, full circle, nobody can see all my hand gestures. I have a lot of Italian in my, my family tree, just moving the hands, was the opera, because we were doing all of this heavy thinking that was not scientific and we're writing these papers about how do you feel about the doctrine of the trinity and how do you feel about using god she and have you properly deconstructed your faith yet and have you lost all of your significant beliefs and what are you going to do with your whole life and you're going to be in so much debt for this degree that's totally worthless and like so you're having all of this but then you show up at hebrew 
And they're just like, here are a bunch of very difficult rules. You must memorize them all, have some note cards. And it just felt like such a freeing space to just put all of the existential crisis and what am I doing with my life and who is God on hold and just memorize shit. And it just was really good. And I really needed it that year. It was really nice to just be thinking a lot of the time, I just need to find the three letters <laughs> that form the root that will tell me the meaning of this word. And then all I have to do after that is figure out what all the letters, what all the other letters are for. You know, are, are they making a noun? Are they making a verb? Are they a bunch of abstract prepositions on top of it? You know, it was, it was kind of nice and I never mastered it. I never came anywhere close. Yeah, I mean, in that same vein, I think Hebrew was so exciting. Or the, the making the flashcards was a really <laughs> big deal for me because I'm learning lately especially and this is what my demon project is going to be about hopefully if it ever gets done how much like actual tangible physical embodied things are important to my spiritual practice so i think just writing flashcards. can you tell me more about like that like what other when you talk about physical things for your spiritual practice like what what are those for you like what are the ones now that you're yeah, so I'm trying to get back into painting, um, which I love. Mm. So, if, you know, we're created in the image of God and God is creator. Then our Imago Dei-ness is also creator, right? So I want to create things. And the way that I create things is painting and drawing, mostly painting. And I'm just trying to sort of understand, like, how this has become a spiritual thing for me or what my spiritual life is missing without physical art creation, et cetera. I don't know. I'm still not great at expressing this. I, you know, I'll bet, I'll bet you could express it really well in a painting, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. I, I went through a phase a couple of years ago where I was just painting like stained glass trees and writing like Hebrew words at the bottom. That is, that is lovely. And that makes me really happy. That is something that I've, I've lost in the, it's been hard because we, so we're living in, we're, I was telling you earlier, we're living in this like 600 square foot apartment, which is fine because I'm unemployed and we don't have that much money and so we're keeping afloat and it is a lovely space like it's got hardwood floors beautiful light which is just everything if you can get the good morning light then you're set but it, there's not a lot of space to really spread out and and do you know holy artistic shit and that's something that I've really I really missed that I haven't done um in 2020 um so it's funny you brought it up because this very morning before we did this podcast I put on some music and I sat down with some of my watercolor pens and just kind of painted some Bible verses and sort of doodled and, and lit a candle and and it felt really good, not in a specific way, like, oh, I learned this about God or I, but it just felt good to be making something while thinking about Jesus. Yeah. Like, just to touch a thing with my hands and think about Jesus. And that feels like in some way, like it's enough, like it's a complete spiritual act. Okay, well, I'll be interviewing you for my demon project again, if it ever comes together. <laughs> it's going to come together. I believe in you so firmly. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. She just needs to get down to the last minute and then it'll <laughs> all magically come together. Can you do all of your demon work the night before? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, if you're Sarah Relaford, yes, you can. <laughs> Superhero. Um... I wrote 20 pages of theology and doctrine paperwork for my ordination in like a day and a half. No! 
We went on a week-long retreat <laughs> to write this paperwork, and I sat day after day after day, <laughs> pile of books, this pile of books, like 30 books high, citing, writing, citing, writing. I was almost done with everything by the time we were done with that retreat, and then Sarah hung out in the corner. I wrote one page. <laughs> She sat on the bed. She just hung out. She would occasionally go, John, let's go get something to eat. <laughs> uh, let's go hang out by out down by the river for a minute. You need a break. And um, then like two days before everything was due, she just knocked all the rest of the stuff out. I'm so jealous of whatever works does that in your brain. Um, typically, I'd be very embarrassed by you sharing that, but I feel like Laura's not going to judge me for that. Oh, no, never. I knows already not. that that's exactly how that went down. So. I mean, not only, there's like, there's like two levels of love here because there's like the love because you're Sarah and you're one of my very favorite people and being a Kindler with you is just the best experience. And also on the Enneagram, I just love nines. I'm pretty sure Jesus was a nine. I think the very, like, you know, Richard Rohr sometimes is like, the pinnacle of the Enneagram is the nine. I absolutely believe him. I think the nine is like the completed human soul and I just adore nines. And so just the the, the love on love is, is just a lot of love. That feels incredible to hear because I love and respect you, obviously, but also I just feel like a mess as a nine. Like nines probably shouldn't be pastors. Like we should barely be able to leave our houses, you know, but uh, I, I think I'm a healthier nine now than I have been in years. I think in seminary, I was not a healthy nine. <laughs> so at some point we're going to do a podcast just on the Enneagram. Yeah, we got to, we got to do it. But can y'all break that down real quick? What is a nine? What is the Enneagram? just so that we have some background available right here on this one. Oh, it's just Christian astrology. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't say that too loudly in front of my Enneagram 5 partner, who has only skeptical and angry words about astrology, but has found a lot of joy from discovering the Enneagram. Oh, excellent. Okay, so the Enneagram is a, is a I guess, a type indicator, a personality type indicator um, about how we relate to each other and the rest of the world. Um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like Laura's oh, going to do better explaining. I love it. I love, okay, I'll keep it so short. I promise. Because I know this is... I need, I need the one to explain it because it's going to be the best explanation. What I love about the Enneagram, I don't generally like personality tests because they're very like, like Myers-Briggs never worked for me. I still don't know what I am on the Myers-Briggs. Like it's, it's, and it's, it's so closed. It's like, this is who you are all the time. This is your personality. Here it is. Take it. Like, this is you. And I don't want to be that person who's like, I can't be boxed in by a personality type, but I found personality types to be very rigid. And the, the beauty of the Enneagram is it's, it's based around this idea of our movements and health and stress. And so the, the, one of the core pieces of the Enneagram is, yeah, there are nine types, but, but importantly, each of the nine types behaves a very particular way under stress and a very particular way when we're doing very well. And all those ways are going to look different. So everybody thrives differently and everybody breaks down differently. And if you can pinpoint what your type is, like where your stress is and thriving is, if you can find that, it can help you be kinder to yourself, be more aware of your areas of growth, um, and be a lot kinder to people around you because as you start to notice types of people, you're like, oh my goodness, like Jenny is just driving me crazy lately. And then you can be like, 
whoa, Jenny is a six under stress right now. And these are some of her behaviors and I can have more grace for her. So that's, that's my kind of like speech about why I just love it so much. That's a great description and also why I love it. And um, yeah. So what's a nine? What's a one? Oh, sorry. Nines are peacemakers. Um, we, uh, oh man, I can only think of the negative things. We can't make decisions. It's tough for us to pick sides. But on the bonus side, we like to, um, I think we can be soothers and, um, well, peacemakers. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. Let me, let me tell you why nines are the best types. So nines are the best type. Nines are the most like naturally generous type I have found of any type. I, I think a lot of nines are really naturally hospitable, not just like in their homes and welcoming, but like in conversations. If you enter in a conversation with a nine, nines tend to be really good listeners and really earnest and really present. Sometimes if you do something really bad, the nine might have an opinion about that, but it never feels like oppressive. I never feel like a nine is out there just like laying burdens on people's backs. Like it's just a, and I also something, one of my very favorite particular quirks about nines is every nine I've ever met is a really generous laugher. Like they laugh easily, they laugh loudly. Yeah. And it's just such a joy if you're in a conversation with a nine and if you start to get a little silly with them, like it's just gonna, there's just gonna be, you just won't stop laughing. It will just be laughter for days and days. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so think about those good things. Okay. And also, <laughs> a nine is the only type that could be the pinnacle of the Enneagram because a nine is the only type that will never really believe that about themselves. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is fantastic. I love this generous take on nines. And um, ones, ones, I, I don't know how, I have a lot of one friends. And I think like nines gravitate towards ones because ones will make the decisions that nines won't, but never in like a, in a way that is uh, unjustified, if that makes any sense. Like it's, it's not gonna be like an eight making a decision, right? You know, where, I don't know, there's, there's a sense of reason and justice and rule following to ones that, and I don't know, I've just always really liked ones. I don't know. I think ones make great pastors too. Aww. Tell us about ones, cause I'm not, articulating this very well at all. You are doing a superb job. I think the one nine connection is really, really strong because also the one of the big things about ones is our inner critic is so loud. Like it is hard to have words for how much we are constantly have like a running commentary about all the things that we've done wrong. And so we hear criticism from other people even when there might not be criticism. So if someone just says something casually that maybe could be taken one out of 30 times in a negative way, we'll hear it negatively. We'll be like, oh my God, that person really hates us. We've been rejected. Um, but because nines are not prone to make those comments, I think ones can feel safe around nines in a way that they don't feel safe around other types. Um, and so that kind of, that that safety, I think also brings out the best in ones. So we, we tend to not be as reactive around nines because we'd actually feel safe. And so nines see the best in us. Yeah, I would love to just tell Enneagram ones how wonderful they are and how much <laughs> I respect everything that they do all the time. That's a, if you're an Enneagram one and you just need a little boost, just go ahead, send us an email. I'll tell you what you're doing well. Cause I guarantee you it's a lot. 
John, do you want to tell us a little bit about sevens? So sevens are perpetually determined to move on to the next big thing. The grass is always greener. We move to one, the one's perfectionism under stress. We move to whatever the reflective one is under rest. I forget which one it was. What uh, you moved to five in health. Yes, there you That's go. the biology degree. Perfectly <laughs> happy to like have that homeostasis and to hang out and to read all day long, which is really my personal ideal. That's my goal in life is just to hit the point where I have to interact with nobody that I want to don't want to interact with and just to read all day. It's my fantasy. My wife is looking at me like she doesn't <laughs> at all. So yes, the healthy five part of you is like that. The seven part of you, and sevens are novelty seeking generally. Um, the pandemic has been, I think, very hard on sevens. Pray mm. for sevens. I don't know if they're okay. Um, they are not okay. They're not okay. My yeah. other seven friends are also not doing okay. It is there. Well, because the thing that a seven really struggles with is like self reflection, is like that urge for novelty kind of pushes against the ability to self-reflect and the pandemic is just all about sitting at home thinking about yourself and so my seven right. friends are just like i can't do this shit <laughs> yeah i do in terms of like spiritual and reflective practices i do really well with practices where i can sit still and just clear my mind but if you ask me to journal or if you ask me to make a particular kind of expressive art it just it's not happening i don't want to do it it just takes me to a place where i'm like i could be doing so many other things <laughs> and coincidentally the um most educational and profound experience i had at candler was a class where we had to journal every single day Oh, wow. And we had to do it in class, so we couldn't get away with not journaling. John is a seven who started a podcast during the pandemic and <laughs> <laughs> a radio show, a new website for his church. Um, yeah, I mean, he's put his seven energy into things, you know, which has really benefited me as a nine who would rather just hide under the covers or create a safe space, practice yoga and like light some candles so we've been a pretty good pandemic team i think so far yeah i think we've really helped to reinforce each other for sure or enable each other i don't know <laughs> it's all good. you know i think the pandemic is not necessarily a time for us all pushing to be our best selves it is a time to help each other survive and you know i think that that's i think that that is good and okay that you all are surviving together <laughs> Thank and also, it doesn't sound like you're doing bad. Like, you're starting podcasts? Oh, no. What a terrible, dysfunctional thing to do under stress. Oh. <laughs> and that's why your Twitter's chaplain. Um, <laughs> um, let's talk about something very deeply spiritual that I know you care about. Um, I want to take a quick turn here. Jodie Whittaker is Doctor Who. How how are you feeling? Have you This is this has been this has been um one of my deep heartbreaks of the last couple of years. Oh no. No, I love Jodie Whittaker as the doctor. Oh, I think she is channeling David Tennant. We were going to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, nope. I I truly love her. I think the writers have done her a dirty. Oh no. Okay. Yeah, I have not been a fan of the writing and I actually stopped watching last year because I was I was frustrated with the writing, but I loved her so much and I I just want Russell T. Davies back. I just want some of those like cheesy blue screens with dumb aliens and I miss I miss the um 
I miss the feel of the Eccleston and Tennant years. Um, and I wish, I guess what I really wish is that I could see Jodie Whittaker in those like early reboot years is is what I wish. Because I just think she's the cutest. Uh, yeah, I dig it. I dig it. We should do a whole episode on the Christology of <laughs> Doctor Who. I have written several short essays that I have not published because of shame about how we David Tennant is those. the most important Christ figure of our generation and the generations before us. Well, I feel like you've thrown the gauntlet down, so now you need to go ahead and defend that right here, right now, exclusive. Uh-uh. Can you Let's put them it, on Laura. your Patreon? We- oh, I, oh my goodness, I totally should. I should dig those up. Because um, I, have, I, have, I have written a couple just as like for my own self. One of them actually I think I put as a draft on my blog and I was like, no, you don't need to, you don't need to do this. <laughs> Okay, so my big, my big, my my larger theory is Aslan as the God figure and David Tennant as the Christ figure, and like that's my those are my um my big images images imaging the divine. I just need a really good Holy Spirit figure. She'll come to me. I believe it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Aslan is the lion from C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, right? Yes, correct. Thank you, John, for clarifying. Aslan is the lion from the Narnia books, and. So my, in a nutshell, thesis about particularly the 10th Doctor as the Christ figure, um, because the other Doctors are great, but Tenet's Doctor is Jesus. Um, and that is because the, <laughs> you know what, John? I miss, I miss this. This is, this is what I miss about seminary. You know what? Continue. Here's the thing. We should just do this all the time. That's yeah. my new theory. This is very good for my soul. Also, as an extrovert who most of my spirituality grows and thrives in conversation with people the pandemic has been very hard to like not have these like coffee shop and beer conversations with people where you're just like spitballing about jesus and then you leave and you're like i feel so inspired by the lord but i it just doesn't it's not the same for me when i'm at home with a book i don't feel that kind of like spark so Mm -hmm. this is good anyways unrelated david Tennant, jesus christ partly because Tennant's doctor is such a just a complete pacifist like in all of his interactions he like he won't hold a gun he hates violence he's against violence and he sees in in every interaction with these like quote evil aliens he's always looking for what is the good thing that you're trying to get right now there are no bad guys for David Tennant's doctor. There are only people whose needs are being met in ways that are not healthy and that he needs to stop them from hurting other people. And he's always doing that. Like he'll step in between the oppressors and the oppressed to use, you know, progressive Christian language for David Tennant's doctor. Like he'll always put his body between them, but he, he never wants to annihilate they, they quote evil alien. He's never out for annihilation. He's always out to understand and to save everybody. He wants to save everybody. And I think that is just the most Jesus-y thing ever. I just almost started crying. <laughs> everybody gets saved. I guess that's actually, that's Eccleston's doctor is the, um, just this once, everybody lives, Rose. Everybody lives. I love that. That's my favorite, like, Easter. Yeah. Um, that's spectacular. Oh my goodness. Now I just want to watch doctor who all day um <laughs> and we do i would love it if you would come back and talk with us again we can talk about 
anything. We can spend a whole you know hour talking about Taylor Swift's folklore because you're right. It is lovely. So good. So as we wind down, there is one question we ask everybody every single week. And it's kind of a doozy. So here it is. What is bringing you joy right now? Do you want to go first? To, no, you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to edit out that like really long. Side. I think I need to leave it for effect. <laughs> leave, leave the. I mean, it's it's tricky to say because right now it feels like there are things that are helping me survive, but I I I don't know what. Oh, you know what's bringing me joy right now? Ah, I know. We're finishing watching Shit's Creek for the first time. Oh, yay. Um, and I, I tried, you know, because everyone cool likes it. And so I tried like three times to get through. And I got through, you know, half of season one. And then I got through all of season one. And then we got through half of season two. And we just, I just wasn't clicking. But we, we were like, let's give it one more try. And it just... We hit season three and I can't even, and honestly, the thing that is just the the most, I think I cry almost every time we sit down to watch it now. Like, I'll just have to pause it and be like, I'm crying now. I need to tell you why I'm crying, Chris. Um, the, the portrayal of queer love as so normal and human and gentle and authentic and trauma-free, like having this relationship that just unfolds without fanfare. I have never seen a queer relationship in media ever that was not based somehow on some kind of trauma or where the theme wasn't the coming out and how hard it was that, that wasn't just hard. Even if it ultimately was happy, the queer love stories that we see in media are just so hard and seeing this be so easy I just it it makes me feel so human and beloved and just it I don't know guys it just is it makes me really happy that's all that's wonderful um we we are also working our way through season six because we had to wait for it to come to Netflix um oh so good that's wonderful what about you, Sarah? I don't know. Now I'm just thinking about Shit's Creek. I, I had a whole lot of time to think about mine. And <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm just going to steal Laura's. No, um, I'm such a nine. I'm so easily in. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what? Why don't you go first and then I'll. You're going to have to cut out all of my giggling and stammering. Never cut out the giggles. If you cut out the giggles, you cut out Sarah. Unbelievable. She will not be silenced. Powerful women giggle too. Put it on a sweatshirt. I'm going to write that down. Well, now we're definitely not cutting any of this out. <laughs> so while we wait for Sarah to figure out hers, um, I guess my big point of joy over this past week has been just sort of taking some time i'm in the middle of reading joe hill's lock and key series which is you know this horror comic book series that is truly incredible i picked up the joe hill humble bundle a while back and have just been slowly reading the trade paperback volumes of lock and key for the past few months and i recently like literally two days ago discovered that joe hill is in fact the son of stephen king 
and all of a sudden everything makes sense. <laughs> it's one of those facts where you're like, oh, oh, the world is this way because. <laughs> but uh, Lock and Key has just been really great. I've, you know, really for the past almost like three years been on a horror tangent almost where I've been just sort of obsessed with horror fiction in my off time. And, you know, Lock and Key has been a real high point in terms of storytelling and art and, um, you know, just sort of this, this story that you tell that really, I think at its heart is about, you know, recovering and dealing with serious trauma. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it has almost like, to me, a C.S. Lewis quality to it. If you also threw in Stephen King, it's like a blend of Stephen King and C.S. Lewis in the best way possible. It explains because I that's one of the only graphic novels that I love is the Lock and Key series. And that explains why I love it so much, because it is Stephen King plus C.S. Lewis. And those are two of my favorite authors. So that's what a what a joy. Um, so mine is not current. OK, but um, I wrote it down earlier when we were talking about personality stuff. Um, but uh, John and I listened to, on a long road trip a couple months ago, uh, The Personality Brokers, which I'm just going to highly recommend to everybody. It's, it is. It's the history of the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And oh. it is wild, y'all. This book has everything. It's got experimenting on your children. It's got Carl Jung fan fiction. It's got sex. It's got Nazi espionage. It's got... <laughs> cheating and scandal and level i mean it is crazy the myers-briggs is bonkers and i still love it and still claim to be an enfp (laughs) for real the gender politics of the creation of myers-briggs alone is just it's hugely eye-opening because you know it was initially born from this idea uh that a bored housewife had when she decided to experiment on her child and (gasps) like psychological sort of testing and experiments and and growing up under that mother must have been extraordinarily difficult but um just such a weird and fascinating story it's really great i just put a hold on it on my library just now i'm so excited uh you won't be sad okay so that's my bringing me joy even though it brought me joy a while ago um but this conversation has been an absolute joy we would love to have you back and talk about anything at all so thank you so much for making this time and before we close though laura where can people find you on the internet or in person if you care to share that but like mostly (laughs) on the internet Uh, this is the part where we dox you (laughs) if you walk around um, the west end beltline in atlanta then you will probably see me running aggressively to a richard Rohr book and fist pumping the air every time he says (laughs) something about jesus that i feel good about um But for actually finding me, please don't come to the West End to find me. Um, For actually actually finding me, I am just, um, my full name everywhere, Um, Laura Jean Truman is my website, laurajeantruman.com, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Laura Jean Truman, L-A-U-R-A-J-E-N-T-R-U-M-A-N. Yes, and you do have a Patreon, yes? that I also have a Patreon, which is also my name, Laura Jean Truman. Um, okay. And I love my Patreon because it is, the pl- I, I, write, I just write an essay, one or two usually per month, and just post it, and it's for everyone, no matter what they give um, every month. And I found it to be a nice place to play with ideas that maybe I don't feel super comfortable 
putting out there for like everyone and their mother to read. Um, so I'll do stuff that maybe is a little weirder or I did one about sex last month where I was like, I don't know if this is orthodox, but <laughs> you all already like me. So um, so that's, that's, a, that's a place I've really enjoyed writing as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Laura. It's been really, really fun. We're looking forward to the sequel episode to this, which I'm sure will drop sometime next year. I will literally come on anytime you all want me to come on. This has been a joy. Thank you all so much. Excellent. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the cool stuff we're working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a great week.